Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're so glad you're here today. If you just bow your heads with me once more and we'll dive into God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have left us um, not only a book that shows the way in which uh, Christians and non-Christians have wrestled with the proclamation of your gospel throughout um, the course of human history, but Lord, it is not a mere book. It is empowered and illuminated by the Holy Spirit itself, um, dividing us, uh, laying us bare and exposed, uh, and the only way that we stand confidently in light of such an exposing, gazing word, is knowing what Jesus has done to take away our sins and bring us back to God. So Lord, we pray today that that truth is our hope in seasons of conflict, um, so that we might continue to obey the way you've called us to obey. We pray this in your name. Amen. I was watching a video this week which helped me understand a little bit more about the tension our country has been wading into this last week and also presented uh, the state of emotions that Peter is writing to in the book of Peter we've been going through. Um, And what happened is it was filming a group of, uh, there's a news station in Southern California, and they're in a neighborhood, and there's a group of looters whose target at this point was a convenience store, which happened to be owned or at least managed uh, by a black man. And the news station was filming this man trying to keep the looters out of his store, verbally wondering when the police were going to show up. And then soon enough, the police, uh, a, a number of police showed up, And they began to, the looters began to run. Many of those looters were black. And the camera was filming them. And as they turned back, they actually showed the owner of the store being arrested. Because in the chaos of people, it was assumed by the police that this man was also a looter. And so the news team began to explain to the police officers that this was one of the good guys. That he was not the problem here. And I remember seeing in the eyes of that man a sort of sorrow. Because in light of all of the personal suffering he was going through, the destruction of his store, he himself was being misunderstood in the midst of it. And this video does help me understand things of which I'm insulated from living in Montana, but it also helped me understand a much broader principle, and this is the principle that Peter wants to expound today, that suffering is hard enough on its own. But there are few things that make us feel more alone and more trapped than when we are misunderstood in the midst of our own suffering. And as we're working through the book of 1 Peter, which Marshall just read for us, you're welcome to turn there, the apostle Peter is writing to people who are going to be misunderstood in the midst of their suffering. Contrary to what our nation is going through right now, this suffering will not be on account of skin color or political views or disease. Instead, it is due simply to one truth, conversion to Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to what has been called in Christian history a third race. They are neither Jew nor Gentile. They are neither black nor white. They are Christian. And as Peter begins to walk these Christians in his churches through the suffering they might encounter on account of their faith, He wants to express to them and prepare them for the reality that they themselves will be misunderstood at times when they are most vulnerable. 
that they are going to be understood or misunderstood by people who they want to actually understand them. And in those moments, Peter's saying instead of feeling isolated, instead of feeling alone, instead of feeling hopeless, he wants them to understand their suffering as Christians through the lens of what Jesus himself means to suffering Christians. The beauty of Jesus to those who feel alone, misunderstood, and vulnerable. You see, we live in a world which is no different than the world Peter was writing to thousands of years ago. It is a world that cannot come to us and explain to us as Christians the reason we are suffering. This world, when you encounter suffering for the sake of Christ, cannot, is totally incapable of comforting you in the midst of that. But Jesus is fully capable. And Jesus is willing to help us when we feel weak. And here's what we're going to see today. We're going to be finishing the last few verses of 1 Peter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first few verses of 1 Peter 4. And what we're going to see is that for the Christian, victorious living is only possible when we understand the victory of Jesus. That's what people want. They want to live victoriously. They don't want to live as defeated. In fact, there are false preachers of the gospel who define victorious living as something completely foreign to what we're going to look at today in Scripture. Today we're going to see that victorious living for the Christian is only possible when we understand the victory of Jesus. And to do this, he's going to press two realities into the hearts of his readers, and one of those is the cause, and the other is the effect. So we're going to see this in two ways. Peter's going to first help us in our understanding of Jesus' victory. Understanding Jesus' victory shapes the way we live in light of that. And then secondly, he wants us to understand the Christian's battle. He's going to help us in understanding the Christian's battle. And Peter is writing to Christians and to churches whom we saw in the very first verse of this book he calls elect exiles. That's the status of anyone who follows Jesus. Putting our faith in Jesus means we belong to God and we don't belong to this world. And that pulls us automatically into tension with people who have a different identity and a different hope. So much so that out of the five chapters of Peter's letters, letter to his churches, three of those five deal specifically with suffering because of your faith in Jesus. And not only the suffering, but how in the midst of that you are to continue to act as Christian. That suffering does not deter our conduct or our hope. And if you remember last week, we concluded with verse 17, where Peter says this to Christians, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And Peter continues right with this very breath as we look at 1 Peter 3.18, the next verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. For Peter, the only way we can make sense of suffering, the only way Christians can endure suffering, the only way Christians can continue to act Christianly in the midst of suffering is by understanding Christ's suffering once for all on the cross. That Jesus suffered once in a final and full way, and in the shadow of that, we live the rest of our lives. You see, the church has long suffered and endured various persecutions stemming from casual to really concentrated. 
from what is just mere social to what is systemic. But this one act, Jesus' suffering on the cross, makes sense of a lifetime of suffering for the church. Why? Because it was in this one event where the righteous man, Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless God-man, suffered for the sins of the unrighteous. Jesus died as a sinless substitute for those who have sinned. Jesus didn't suffer because he needed to. Jesus suffered because we needed to. Our sin demands death, but Jesus willingly subjected himself to suffering death on a cross. Why? Now, I think this is a great question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? If you had to answer that, what would you say? Peter provides his own answer in here, that he might bring us back to God. Jesus went to the cross to bring us back to God. The greatest problem we have in our world, the source of all of the problems that social media is putting in front of us on our feeds right now, is that we are separated from God. Our sin separates us from God, and if we don't know how to relate to God, how are we going to know how to relate to any of God's image bearers in the world around us? It compounds a problem that this world will throw solution after solution towards, but will never solve. We can't litigate the problem of sin. That's what human history has shown us. Why? Because sin isn't primarily between humans. Sin is primarily between humans and a God whom they have rejected. God as king created us to be his people. And our sin is the sin of rebelling against that king. Not worshiping him, not obeying him, not honoring him. And in our sin, we are born unaware of that, because just, but just because we're unaware of a rule does not mean that when we break that rule, we have an excuse. That's what all of us are born into. Because God is the creator king, he deserves and is due our worship. And when we fail to do so, we are met with just condemnation. But Jesus, the eternal son of God, became a man, became incarnate, meaning in the flesh. And he came and he lived perfectly, always honoring his father, always obeying his father, always uh, worshiping his father so that he could die for those who failed to do it. He could die in the place of those who have earned a track record of condemnation where Jesus earned only a track record of blessing. And for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we have received not only the removal of punishment because Jesus has died your death, but you have also been brought back to God himself. That's the twofold joy of Jesus. He takes our condemnation and he brings us back to God. How did Jesus accomplish all of this? Peter says, by suffering, by suffering according to God's will. It was Jesus' suffering which led to a stunning victory. And this is Peter's first point today. He wants to help us in understanding Jesus' victory. And there's a lot that goes on in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, but Peter's big theme as we sit down to read this is that though Jesus suffered... Jesus was the victor. There's this paradox he's after. Jesus suffered, Jesus died, but Jesus is the victor. Read with me verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so here we see this theme of victory and what is the proof of Jesus' victory? What is it that makes his suffering and his death give way to victory? It's Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We see it explicitly in verse 21, but that's what he's alluding to in verse 18 when he says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now I want to be careful here because we can get a wrong understanding of what Peter is saying. He isn't saying that Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit when he was on earth. But then after he died and was resurrected, then he had the Spirit, right? When we read the Gospels, we see that's completely out of place. We see Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. We see it in fulfillment of prophecy. So Jesus had the Holy Spirit. It also doesn't mean, and this is another error that we often fall into, that Jesus lived in the flesh and when he died and rose again, he existed only as a spirit, as if everything that's physical is bad. And if we really want to be saved, we'll put at distance all the physical things, including perhaps our body. Because Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised in the spirit, but he was physically resurrected. We see Jesus in the pages of scripture after his resurrection doing things which only real people do. He was touched, he ate, he drank. So what does Peter mean when he makes this point of being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? Well, I think he's showing that Jesus, even though he went through the physical, anatomical pain of being crucified, of dying, of being buried, when he was raised, he was renewed in his spirit. Death and destruction did not destroy Jesus eternally. And Peter had a firsthand experience with this. If you remember, Peter was one of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who went up on a mountaintop with Jesus during his ministry where Jesus was transfigured before them. If you haven't read this story, you could read it this week in Matthew 17. But what happens is these three were up there with Jesus, and for a moment, Jesus was transfigured. In other words, they saw Jesus not simply as another human, but they saw Jesus in all of his radiant glory. It said he was, he was white, he was radiant, he was like the sun. And then God acknowledged that. And then in a moment, they looked back at Jesus, and he just looked like Jesus. He looked like any other, he looked like Peter, he looked like James, he looked like John. He was Jesus in the flesh. And there's a real sense where part of Jesus' glory, the eternal glory of the second person of the Trinity, was veiled while Jesus was in the flesh. But after Jesus' resurrection, that veil was removed. Christ was not only resurrected, he was the transfigured, radiant Christ forever. And Paul speaks of a similar transformation, even of believers who hope in Jesus. We share in Jesus' resurrection, and that resurrection has something new, something distinct about it. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 45. 
So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living, living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. And so the tension is, though Jesus seemed crushed, though Jesus seemed to die and did really die, that's not the end of the story. There is this transformation, this newness of spirit, which happened in Jesus. Why is this important to this church that is encountering, perhaps like you will in life, opposition because of its faith? Well, that's because it comforts believers in two ways. And we're going to look at those. First, it shows the supremacy of Jesus, and then it shows the assurance of the Christian. In showing the supremacy of Jesus, Peter does this by showing Jesus' victory lap over all the cosmic forces in this text. Jesus runs around the stadium high-fiving triumphantly while the defeated uh, foes lay watching. And Peter does this by showing Jesus in his resurrected form proclaims a victory over spirits who were imprisoned and over spirits who were around in Noah's day. Peter, uh, in the two letters we see of him in the New Testament, he loves this story of Noah. You know, the global genocide we put on our nursery walls. That's what he talks about a lot. And this is helpful when we understand Peter's theology, but it does provide us a little bit of a stumbling block when we try to understand what and whom he is speaking about. In fact, this text right here, Martin Luther says this of, he says, a wonderful text this, this, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain what Peter means. So that's what we're looking at today. I'm going to sidestep a lot of the debate for us, and I'm going to focus on what I think Peter is making most clear in what is kind of a difficult allusion here. And he's proclaiming Jesus' victory over fallen angels, specifically those who disobeyed in the days of Noah. Now, right before Genesis 7, which is known in the flood, is Genesis 6. That's how chapters work. And in Genesis 6, we, we read another kind of confusing text, which seems to allude that some of God's angels rebelled and began to act in inappropriate ways with human women. And Peter's second letter seems to tell us a little bit about what happened to those angels during Noah's day. So this is his second letter to his churches in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... But if, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so Peter understands these angels to be imprisoned spirits. They're fallen angels who rebelled against God. And why is he singling out these specific angels when he's making this case of the resurrection? Well, because during the time of the flood, there was this pinnacle of human wickedness. We read about uh, the thoughts of men were continually evil at all times. There was none who were doing good save Noah and his family. And the story of these angels sinning with humans in Genesis 6 shows us that it was not only 
human creation that was fallen, but spiritual creation was fallen. Sin abounded everywhere. Everything was corrupted by sin. Everyone was rebelling against God. And God, in this story, vindicates that on humans by sending a flood to judge them. And that theme of judgment is seen in Christ's cross in the same text we'll come back to later. But it is here in the resurrection of Jesus that that God vindicates his wrath on the spiritual realm. It's here in the resurrection of Jesus that that Jesus shames those whom the flood did not. It is proclaiming victory over the fallen angels. This is emphasized all the more in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, where we see the language. This Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Jesus has conquered them. They tried to kill him, and what do you do to a man you can't kill? You tremble. So again, what's Peter's point here? Well, Peter has already quoted from Isaiah chapter 53 in chapter 2. In Isaiah 53, we see this prophecy of Isaiah's suffering servant, which was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And look at how Isaiah 53 describes Jesus in the moment of his death. This is Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 4. He, that's the suffering servant, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as of one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, he's saying, certainly he dealt with your problem, people, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, the ultimate suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, he was misunderstood. It appeared even to those who would be the ones he would ultimately save that Jesus was the defeated one. That he was the one who messed up, that God would treat him in this way, that he is the chief of all sinners, that he is the one who was violated God's law, both by the men who physically killed him and Satan and his evil spirits who worked in their hearts, they saw the cross as their own victory. Jesus, in his plan to establish his kingdom, had utterly failed. They had won. But here Peter shows that appearances can be deceiving. This Jesus, though he suffered in the flesh, has now been resurrected and conquers all things. He rose from the grave and he now sits above angels and authorities and powers and he is not only over them, they are subjected to them. He is Lord over all things. Why is this of hope to suffering believers? Because if you are one who has hope in Jesus Christ, you are not following a dead God. You are not following an eternally crushed Savior, but instead the risen, ruling, and reigning King Jesus. We, as followers of Christ, do not need to fear the world when we are saved by the King who conquers it. In our social media world, we know now, probably more than any other time in human history, the weight of the power of public opinion. 
We know how we can come with the masses of our followers and the likes who like our position and not your position, and we could leverage it and say, you're on the wrong side. Conform to us. Cave to us. And here comes Peter to believers who throughout history have found themselves on the wrong side of public opinion, opposed by powerful and vocal accusers. And Peter says, you're behind this king. You're on the right side of history. Your king has conquered. The worst they could do was kill him, and they did. And he beat that. What threat is posed to a king who has beaten the grave? And there's comfort in this. And how do you know that? How do you know that despite everything you're encountering, that you're with this king? Well, this is the second sign of Jesus, or the second comfort of Jesus' supremacy, and this is the assurance of the believer. Not only is he the ruling and reigning king, but by grace, he can be our king. He could be our defender and not our accuser. Look again at how Peter puts this in verses 20 and 21. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here Peter's theme of Noah shifts from kind of focusing on the spirits who are in prison to focusing on us as believers in the nature of salvation. God was going to send a flood to judge the world because the wages of sin is death. But God chose to save Noah and his family because Noah, we read in the Genesis account, was not like the world. Noah was a righteous man. Now we know that Noah was not perfectly righteous because right after the flood, Noah gets drunk and does some pretty stupid things. And there's hope for us in here because God is not saving perfect people. If God saves perfect people, all of us, even if we're a Noah, are destined to show that that perfection will certainly give away. But God saves sinners. And Noah's righteousness, just like with Abraham, was seen primarily in that he was willing to obey God and build the ark. Why was Noah saved? Ultimately, it was because he trusted in God and God's ark, even when the world laughed at Noah's labor. And Peter says, this is akin to your baptism. Just as Noah was brought through the waters of judgment, baptism now corresponds to your safe passage through judgment as well. That you, in faith, you have trusted in God's ark. You have trusted in the one way where you could pass safely through the death that your sin deserves. Baptism is commanded by Jesus as a response to faith. If you believe in him, if you have confessed your sins, then the first thing we do is to become baptized. Why? Because baptism identifies us with the true and greater ark, with Jesus, who's the one who brings us safely through the punishment our sins deserve. And that's because baptism acknowledges the powerful truth that Peter is painting, that your sin buries you under the deluge of judgment. Just as you go down into the water, 
you identify with the not good news of your sin. It demands death. To go into the waters of judgment is to die. But we have a new ark which saves us. Something which does not allow us to simply float on the top, but something which actually brings us up out of it. And what is that that brings us out of the waters of judgment? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as we were buried with Jesus, just as he took our sin to the grave, his resurrection brings us up out so that we can have hope and life abundantly. Jesus, in his resurrection, established a real victory over sin, over Satan, and over his spirits. And here Peter looks at this testimony of baptism and he presses it into our hearts so that we might have hope in hard times. We like to say when people are getting baptized, you that baptism uh, is a reminder that we live the rest of our lives with wet clothes. We live the rest of our lives kind of weighted with the wetness of water, and it serves as a reminder for us. It reminds Christians of two things. It reminds them of their comfort, and it reminds them of their conduct. When we're struggling in our walk with God, whether that's because of our own sin, whether that's because of the sin of suffering in this world, we can feel our wet clothes and we could be reminded of what Peter says in this text of a good conscience before God. What does he mean when he says that? He says you could have a clear hope. You in the face of all of this can have a clear comfort. Peter uses this same word in verse 16 when he said this. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Dear believer, there will be times in this world where Christ's victory seems so far away, when his love for you feels so distant. And in those times, consider your clothes. If they are wet with the baptism of Jesus, you are reminded that Jesus has given you a good conscience before God that you can stand without the weight of your performance. Christians, and certainly non-Christians, we can spend our lives trying to be justified, trying to have good conscience in the court of public opinion. But I guarantee you, there will be a time where you have to question if you have protested enough, if you have given enough to charitable causes, if you have slept with enough people, if you have taken enough adventures, if you have lived life to the fullest, and I promise you, you could achieve all of that to whatever extent you can, and when you stand before that judge, you will still wonder, was it enough? And Scripture tells you it's not. And if Scripture doesn't tell you, I promise you there will be a day when your world does. Even the world knows that's not enough. But what hope is there in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that when you feel that the world wishes to only disqualify you, it is Jesus' perfect life that qualifies you. When the world wishes to isolate you, it is Christ in his condescension who draws near to you. There will be times when you feel like you are the sole member of a losing team, but the resurrection reminds you that you stand in Jesus before God, accepted perfectly, fully. Why? Because it's only Jesus who can return us to God. 
It's only Jesus who can, desi- who can fulfill that desire we have to be justified, to be accepted. Baptism reminds you of what we hold true in the gospel of Jesus, that Christ is our comfort before God and nothing else. But it also reminds us of how we conduct ourselves, of Christian conduct. Baptism not only signifies Jesus' past performance and the future reward laid up for us in heaven, but it also shapes our present conduct. That's the big scope of what Peter's doing here, but this is also what Paul himself speaks of in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. There's being lowered into the waters. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, there's the new ark, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because Jesus' suffering secured for us new life, we now get to live out his victory as Christians. We get to actually live as new people. We get to live, as Peter says, in the Spirit. Because Jesus has freed us from sin, one of the rewards of a Christian is that we get to obey. We get to trust and do what Jesus has called us to do. But this liberated obedience doesn't look like victorious living by worldly standards. Why? Because this life of obedience led our Savior to be crushed on a cross. It led him to suffer. So we should assume that in obeying Jesus, we too might encounter seasons where we suffer. But even in these moments, there's hope. Look at what Peter says next in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, that's in the body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is our second point today. Only when we understand Jesus' victory can we now turn to understanding the Christian's battle. Jesus' resurrection and ascension has shown us that the victory is sure. There's no debate. How certain is your hope? As certain as a risen, ruling, and reigning Jesus. What threat is posed to him? None. What threat is posed to those who are held by him? None. But the daily battle of living in light of Jesus' victory is not yet over. And his point here is pretty simple. If you want to endure as elect exiles, you must arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You must weaponize your hope with the hope of Jesus. Peter is telling us your greatest weapon to live life as a Christian, as an elect exile, is thinking on your trials and your suffering and your obstacles the same way Jesus viewed his trials and his obstacles. How did Jesus view this? Consider Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Again, look at how the Christian comfort is connected with Christian conduct. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See here Jesus is, this theme of Jesus' cross is intermingling of shame and celebration, of victory, but also defeat. And if we are to arm ourselves in the same way of thinking as of Jesus, who for the joy set before him did it, that means that we must see the reward of God as greater than the reward of this world. Why? Because it's only the reward of God which saves us. It's only the reward of God which deals with the weight of our punishment. He shows this clearly in the next verse, in 1 Peter 4, verse 3. Peter says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, remember when we're reading the New Testament, like that's why Christians are called the third race, because there's really two groups of people that the biblical authors are writing to. There are Jews, and there are Gentiles. That's anyone who's not an ethnic Jew, and they're saying that Jesus makes all of those Christian when they turn to them in faith. Christianity is this third race. And so he's speaking of Gentiles here. He's speaking generally about non-believers. And he now goes on to give a laundry list of words that your pastor loves to say from a pulpit on Sunday. And these words are obvious things that are obviously things that are out of place with the conduct of one who is saved by Jesus. But I find the language he uses here really sobering in my own heart. He says, because of all that Jesus has done for you, because he has suffered in the flesh for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, the time you spent in the past is sufficient for doing those things. The time you spent sinning is sufficient. That's such a unique word, isn't it? My wife has this unique joy in making me smell things that are gross. I don't know why, but we'll be in our home and we'll encounter something that is malodorous with four kids that's pretty common. And she brings it to me and she says, this is disgusting, smell it. (laughs) And I say, I'm good. I can smell it from here. I don't need to get any closer. This experience is wonderfully sufficient for me to understand it's not good. I don't need to bring it closer to my nose. And what I love about Peter's message is that it assumes radical conversion. He assumes that you, that his church struggles with lust, with sexual impurity, with drunkenness, and with idolatry. But when the gospel of grace, when the work of Jesus cleanses us and washes over us, it means that we have, in a, in a way, as we looked in Deuteronomy, and Moses says, we have come to our senses. Our noses realize how filthy that lifestyle was. And we say this, when we look back at our life of sin, we say, I don't need to get any closer, I can smell it from here. I don't look back longingly because I realized the filth that that was. It was that time spent in sin was sufficient. You see, sin is ultimately a battle for sufficiency, isn't it? If Jesus is insufficient to satisfy what you think your greatest need is, to give direction to your life, then you will always turn to sin to bring sufficiency in the realm of belonging, of joy, of satisfaction. But haven't we seen a track record of human history that has tasted and experienced every aspect of what the world presents to be sufficient 
And if we look at social media today, we found it's woefully insufficient, isn't it? But if Christ, the one who defeated death, who solved your greatest problem, who brings you back to God, if he is wonderfully sufficient, then we could look at those sins. Sins which, let's not lie, we participated in them for a reason. And it wasn't because when we were in it, we thought them to be gross. It was because we thought them to be great. Things that had a real hold of desire in our hearts. And we can hear their calls for sufficiency. We can hear their siren song, but we can choose instead to see the risen and ruling Savior and know that he and he alone can bring us back to God. We can only say no to sin when we learn to say yes to Jesus and his sufficient work and his risen and resurrected hope. And that's part of the battle of living life in light of Jesus' victory. Christians must learn to see sin or to see Jesus as sufficient so that we can look at sin not with a longing of what we're missing out on but with gratitude of what we've been saved for. For those who've wrestled with this temptation, which I'm assuming is all of us if we're Christian, we know how difficult this can be. We know the level at which our hearts Wrestle with that sufficiency. We know the pain of being alone and wrestling with going back to the well of the things we once went went to. And in those times, it is a sorrowful, it is an agonizing fight. And here Peter says that's only the internal battle. There's also an external one. In the face of that battle, there are those who will push back externally on you. We read this in verses three through six. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless adultery. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So I want to be careful to not miss the wonderful work of the gospel in this text, okay? Peter is assuming what we should assume every time we share the gospel with our neighbors, our families, or our coworkers. Jesus saves messed up people, He saves people who not only have a closet full of all these token sins, but who have probably built a community around those sins. And then he comes and he begins to speak to us when that community begins to recognize the difference. If you're someone who feels the call to go back to old sins, if you're someone who's wrestling with the changing opinions of friends or families, I want to encourage you that you are not outside of God's care for you. That God is not distant from you. You're not in a wrong spot to be here. Peter is assuming this tension and the grace of Jesus and the reward of salvation is sufficient to see you through it. But it is a hard place to be in nonetheless. As much as Peter assumes wonderful conversion for the individual, he also assumes confrontation from those who are outside of us. See, nothing we can do can earn us salvation, but our salvation changes everything we do. And sometimes that includes not doing things we used to do 
with people who used to expect us to do those things with them. Peter's still assuming we have contact with this group. He's not calling for complete Christian withdrawal from culture, but he's assuming that the weight of our conversion will begin to place a strain on our relationships. And the truth is, you're going to experience this strain of holiness not only with non-Christians, but you'll also experience it with Christians. My life has been shaped indelibly by believers who stopped joking, talking, or watching movies that was once common for us to do. And it sobered me up to the fact that maybe there's something wrong in my life. How many of you have felt this kind of tension before? Maybe you've seen someone changing in front of you, or maybe you've seen others responding to the change that's inside of you. How many of you have been in a place where friends or family expected you to perform or do something that your new identity in Jesus now prohibits? What was that weight like? What thoughts did you have? Because while many of us have had moments like that, I think the majority of us are actually in these moments far more than we imagine. And if we're not careful, it will become all too easy for us to cave to the court of public opinion instead of the heavenly court of God himself. You see, remember, as Peter's talking about this, imperial and formal persecution is still 35, 40 years in the future of this church. It's not happening yet. The persecution they were facing was malignment, that is being made fun of, being called names, being spoken ill of, when you stopped gossiping about that coworker with your friends at work, and they thought perhaps you're maybe just better than them, or maybe that you're siding with this other person. It's a tension that comes when you leave a brewery early instead of staying later or taking the extra drink. It's the pain that comes when you stop having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend when that was the standard prior to this point. It's the awkwardness in this political age when we don't make coarse jokes or spew hate towards those who are on the other side of the spectrum when part of our belonging was simply by mocking those who are not with us. This tension is to feel as out of place and as foolish as Noah as he built an ark in a world where there was no rain, but endured because he trusted God. I want to be clear. There are times, specifically in America, where we are prone to wear our cultural opposition as a badge of honor. That's the wrong posture. When we are suffering, if our suffering seems to some way point to our own strength, we're doing it all wrong. Our suffering should show our immense weakness, and instead it should show the sufficiency of Jesus in our life. We shouldn't make suffering about our own stunning morality. Instead, we make our suffering about the Jesus who saves us and endures us in moments of hardship. But, at the same time, if we do not feel this weight, when you read this text and you think, have I had times where people around me don't encounter attention because of my actions? It could be that God's been very, very gracious to you and to your friends and to your family. But it could also be a time where you treasure solidarity with public opinion more than you treasure solidarity with Jesus. And we ought to just consider that. 
What is, it that, what is it that keeps us from encountering these moments of tension? Because a number of times in this book, Peter alludes to the fact that sometimes our conduct, though opposed by Gentiles, will actually prove to win them to Jesus. But there are other times where he says they will rail all the more against you. And he assumes one of those arguments here. Here, he assumes this argument that we all die anyway. Why not enjoy life while we're here? Why not do all of these things? Because we ultimately all end up as corpses. You Christians, I've watched you die. What do you have that's any different than me? Look what Peter says in verse six. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That's Christians who have passed away. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, it's the court of public opinion, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Culture might say some life, you're, some life you have. You said no to all the joys of the world and you're dead just like everybody else. But here he comes to this external conflict and he brings the eternal hope. You see, there's times where the world will see your suffering as utterly foolish and they will see your gravestone as a sign that you are not different. But death, which is the pinnacle of suffering for humanity, is only the beginning for the Christian. Because we have a resurrection hope. We know that this body will die. But we know that Jesus has redeemed and promised a resurrection of those who put their faith in him. We know this world is not the end. Why? Because Jesus' empty tomb shows that he came out of the grave victorious and so too will all who believe in him. And so we can stand in the face of opposition and we can fear nothing because we know that one day we will stand with Christ. And you see, if we miss the hope of Jesus' resurrection... We miss the help that Christ has given us to endure in this world. To not fill our minds, to not arm ourselves with this thinking of a ruling and reigning Jesus. We will always wonder if we are making the right decisions when pressed by those who stand opposed to us. The world will often misunderstand Christians and cause them to suffer as a result. But we as Christians have the wonderful ability in our suffering to remind us that Christ has removed the ultimate punishment for sin. That's what Peter says. Those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. That's not to say we're sinless, but it means that in those moments, suffering reminds us that we've been delivered from the eternal weight of sin. And Lord willing, as we walk into these moments of potential persecution, we can pray and hope that the same people who malign us might see a hope that's better than theirs, might see a God greater than their God, and might turn and repent, and they might be the dead ones brought back to life, just as we were. So let's move forward with the hope of the gospel and know that Jesus gives us the ability to do good even when things are not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for us as a church that we would have a lens that fits our eyes with the primacy of Jesus that everything he went through for us helps us in all the things that we go through for him. I pray that our conduct is distinct in a way where we are encouraged at the eternal reward which is for us in Jesus. But Lord, I also pray that it stands as a witness to the watching world. Lord, we ask that you do this in us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might be the church 
that you have purchased by your blood. We pray for those who are weak in here, Jesus, that you would strengthen them. We pray for those who are lost in here, Lord, that you would remind them that you stand on the right side of history and that you have loved them in the cross and called them to yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.